Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico and you can find me swinging through one more time at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on all your socials. And I'm TK, you can find me feeling loose and slamming heat for one more day at xnatexgrayx. And like so many games sunset after the fall of Stadia, we stand here with a strong sense of wonder. I don't even know how to explain this. We kicked the Spider-Girl MC2 experience off not even a year ago. But dude, I think I feel like we've been doing this for a decade. Oh, yeah. I mean, like it, it definitely feels like I knew that it was not a super long time or anything, but you could not tell me it wasn't a year at least. And then like, literally it's not like, it's just, it's very funny. We have put a startling amount of time into just sitting down and recording these, let alone all of the reading and research. You know, when you look at the time frame, I'm, I'm so amused because <laughs> we're just talking about MC2, which, you know, doesn't exist. We're talking about Spider-Girl who like you and I are with bated breath checking to see if she still has a pulse in present day Marvel comics. I really am in love with the amount of time that we have spent on this. But if you, dear listener, are like, that's fucking crazy, that's okay, too. That's understandable. Because we actually only started this whole project back in May. May 6th, 2022, kicked off the first installment in this ridiculous project. And this represents installment number 37. Even that just blows my mind. Like, I, you know, I even would have said it has to been end of February like it just feels like we have put so much time into this and because I know it hasn't actually been that long I I keep sort of finding ways to try and extend it because just you know the hours long sessions we would spend on the silliest you know plot about May Day breaking up a crime family yet again <laughs> It feels like it has to have taken longer to get there. But man, we really pressed through these. And I think it's for the better that we spent all together nine months looking at these 36 episodes worth of content. And dear listener, I am the king of metrics. You guys know that I love to do metrics. And we've already talked about how this definitely isn't the end of the project. The much touted someday we're going to do ASM by JMS. It's of course going to happen. The continuation of Spider-Verse in the pages of Spider-Man, of course. And we've even picked up some silly things like there's this this sort of crazy eights uno spider verse card game and i had to buy it because i was hoping may would be in it but she wasn't but enough other spider characters we are that we love are in it so i don't care and we're gonna play it over on youtube because and, yeah you know at the same time like what we conceived this project to be at the start was a little bit nebulous we knew that the goal was really to read the mc2 stuff and like you know spider girl became a very popular character we knew that 
J2 was really amusing to both of us. And, you know, you had this nostalgia for it. I had like a weirdly missing nostalgia because this really should have been right in my alley. And we just wanted to cover it. We didn't know what else it meant. But as the project has evolved, we kind of understand a lot more about what we got out of it, what we were looking for. And the fact of the matter is we're going to be doing a lot of coverage of various, you know, projects that Marvel has done, other universes. This is not the end of our interest in finding important relics of the Marvel universe or interesting facets and doing these kind of deep dives. And it all started here. They won't all necessarily be under the same name. We're not going to do, you know, the next thing that we do is not going to be the next episode of this, but it really all is born out of this interest that we both had in getting really deep about something that I think traditionally the comics fandom might have said, you probably can't go that deep with it. And deep did we go. So man, there is some real to the hilt pelvic action here because in that nine months across that 36 episodes, now today's episode is properly devoid of anything new and even our most devoidiest early episode, our kind of zero episode that after producer Kevo has spent a good amount of time verbally haranguing me for counting as number zero and not putting in the numbering, which made his file system inhumane and cruel. Uh, sorry about that, baby. But we did have a like a Spider Girl Zero, Spider Girl One kind of vibe to that first segment. So we've covered in that time 456 issues, short stories, children's picture books, and more. 456 in nine months. And it's really crazy just how much of it is Spider-Girl. Oh, and I cannot wait to bring you those numbers. Yeah. Because for there to be 456 issues across 36 episodes means we covered between 12 and 13 issues per episode of the show. And while the show had kind of a weird nebulous vibe at first, we were sure that one of the things that we wanted to focus on was going to be the MC2 proper. I was so convinced when I pitched you this that what we were looking at was the MCU was the MC2. I guess, you know what? I'm going to leave that in because that's probably one of the last MC2 MCU snafus, we're, uh, MC snafus that we're going to have. And it's, uh, oh, I'm going to miss those. But that original zero one, not quite episode, so sorry, Kevo. All we talk about is MC2 and a lot of back matter on MC2. But that's really all we talk about is MC2. Yeah, and that was sort of the idea. We knew that Mayday was important for the existence of MC2 and was the big carry away from the the death of that universe in a commercial sense. But I think we really did see this more as an MC2 project. And, you know, as we went up, I think we really did justice to the MC2. But as we were starting to realize, you know, and I think it was way before we even finished covering all the series, but we started to see that where the place at which it became clear that MC2 was not going to be the ultimate universe. And from there, with so much more Spider-Girl to cover, we really had to think about, okay, well, what else are we talking about? And what are we looking at here? Because 
know, it simply is not the same thing once it's just Mayday's book. And although it is technically in another universe, that universe, the existence of it isn't important in the way that it is for the Ultimates universe and the way that that will reflect and merge with 616 as time goes on. So it really became about Mayday. And from there, things really took on a very different life. And the focus just became not at all what I think either of us would have expected uh, at the start of all this. And I think you really hit something so important there that without saying the words, you've really pointed to an error in the thesis of the MC2, not in our thesis of examining it. And that is to say that comics should frequently be about what is compelling, new, and different, even when they're about what's the same, even when you're telling stories that feel good and classic stories. You want to give people something that at least makes it that their purchase is unique somehow, that their purchase does something that offers them an experience they've never had. And I feel as though the Ultimate Universe, better or for worse, wasn't just rehashes of the 616 universe, because if it was, I would have liked it a lot more. And that's significant. Like, I I understand that that's like a beatdown, but it's an accurate beatdown that portrays a very real feeling. The new universe, fucked sideways as it was by, I don't even understand, but it had a legacy and it did something different. 2099 did its own thing. But, you know, the MC2 really seemed like a universe that was like, hey guys, do you just want to ride on the coattails of previous stories? Not really transform them? Endlessly reference them. The Ultimate Universe didn't reference, like, it wasn't like Wolverine went up to Magneto and was like, hey, you remember that shit I did in Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X back in the pages of Marvel Comics Presents? Don't fuck with me. He was like, I'm a new Wolverine. I'm going to chop your head off. It's going to come a year before I do it in the other books. I'm not like like, a regular dad. I'm a cool dad. Snick, snick, motherfucker. It's, you know, it's everybody is going to start singing Jingle Bells a cappella, and it's really terrific. I just can't wait to see Toad get hit in the head with a boombox. <laughs> So the point here is just like all of these notes, I was saying to TK that I have literally some like 75,000 words and notes on the MC2. And one of the things that strikes me the craziest is all of my notes are about how emergent ideas in media are about evolving storytelling from a dynamic perspective. And yet one of the major flaws of the MC2 universe beginning to end is that it seeks only to reference existing work even when it seeks to advance those ideas. Yeah, I mean, it really did just want to say, what if we could pick a nebulous but solid point in uh, traditional Marvel history and just kind of from there leapfrog over all the stuff that we can't cover from that point, from between that point and now, and fast forward to an alternate present, which is also kind of the regular Marvel Universe's future and tell some other stories. It's weird because I actually, as I describe it like that, I can see an editorial way in which it works. You know, the Ultimate Universe was really just about what if we took all of the core concepts of, and sometimes not even core, what if we took concepts that are obvious and popular about uh, Marvel characters and just reworked them as though we had thought of them in 
the present and not that, you know, they were thought of in the 60s and had to marginally be updated. And sometimes that's really ham fisted and sometimes it's really beautiful. But like, what if we could from taking somebody's look and re-explaining their origin today to taking, you know, Cap's very obvious frozen and ice origin, but updating when and how he's broken out to today's standards. What does that look like? How would that reflect, you know, how can we never have have the X-Men without ever having had Professor X say that he was in love with Jean Grey? Because were the X-Men conceived of today, that simply would not happen. Cool idea, really cool concept, and great stuff came out of it, terrible stuff came out of it, Miles Morales came out of it, so it was worth every issue published. But MC2, even though it had a concept that was almost like that, it never wanted to work with it so fully that readers could understand the point of why you would create this new universe and tell the stories in it. It really was just like, we want the adults to just totally be parents and then versions of the heroes that are kids. Period. And yeah, and it's even in that that I think we are able to kind of point to the unmissable fallacy of the MC2 universe, which is everyone would share that, that splinter point, that exact moment to take. And it's so funny because as this show has evolved, you know, my friendship and and greater, you know, relationship with TK, like literally evolved on air to like where we went from people who enjoyed making the same kind of podcast and, you know, to now where like, you know, our lives are endlessly intertwined. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to tell where one of our days ends and one of our days begins. <laughs> but one of the things is, you know, together along with Kevo, you know, producer on the show and husband extraordinaire, we've rebuilt what X is for podcast is about and we've expanded the definition of the network and we've changed what the show is and what the show does and in the course of that one of our big focuses has been on expanding our content coverage on X is for podcast into a live show which runs uh, once or twice a week over on YouTube on our amazing YouTube channel which everybody should definitely check out definitely definitely it's going to be in the link for this episode in the description and one of the things that we've been doing over there is covering dark web the current spider-man x-men event so fucking weird that we're covering so much spider-man x-men after we just did renew your vows which was essentially spider-man x-men the characters in dark web characters like elizabeth tyne and there's going to be a normie osborne who is vaguely an anti-venom red goblin running around in the next major multiverse crossover like the things that we were sort of championing about this like weird weird little universe that we've even said these were nobody else's moment. It turns out there are enough people who do share this moment now, but I think it's because of the MC2. I don't think in 1998 people were like, yeah, dead baby moment. No, I think you're right about that. And I think, you know, Elizabeth Tyne is such a great example. Ultimately, the mother of Dark Devil. And what we're dealing with in Dark Web is a lot of clone stuff. Clone stuff being hugely important to the Spider-Girl MC2 mythos, but then weirdly, it almost never being identified as clone stuff. Kane never being mentioned as a Spider-Man clone, but being like a, a an 
uncle figure to Mayday because he is a brother in some ways to Peter being Mayday and Dark Devil essentially being cousins. There's just so much interesting stuff. And I, I, I think that it's not even so much that it wouldn't have happened. Something like Dark Web wouldn't have happened without MC2. It's that MC2 really was ahead of its time in picking some things that seemed like they would be important and picking some character concepts that you could imagine a future for those concepts. And when we look at something like Dark Web more than 20 years later, here's the future for some of those concepts. And it's different because Marvel has a little trouble getting to its own future. But even just the character of Elizabeth Tyne and her relationship to Ben Riley, whatever may come out of Dark Web, I, I do think that you know, this could be a theoretical origin for Dark Devil, the character that she's playing, Hallow's Eve, uh, the dark, mysterious, semi-Halloween theme. Transforms with whatever mask she puts on, like it's some kind of Are You Afraid of the Dark story. <laughs> also, 10 points for your use of she's playing Hallow's Eve. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's a fictional character, and that's her pseudonym in this universe, right? Because, like, I forget, and these become like people to me like and it feels like they're cast it feels like the cast of one show that i vaguely recognize showing up in other things where they're playing similar versions of themselves yeah it really does and i just to me it's like tom defalco really understood so what we've said from the beginning he really understood stuff about these characters and could pinpoint what would be important and i think the fact that we're seeing it now being said well it's definitely important bears that out and the fact that it's so much you know it's so many years later and we are we are picking up some of these threads like i nothing would make me happier than for this to be the inception point for the existence of 616 dark devil uh, especially given everything that is happening in present marvel continuity with spirits of vengeance and you know spirits of vengeance being a huge part of dark devil's origin story and mythos i mean it's just for all that it is not built with the staying power of something like the ultimate universe which you know even that did not have a ton of staying power for all that mc2 is not built with that same staying power it really left something behind it left behind architectural ruins that i i think we all should be visiting and it's really interesting that you're mentioning the architectural ruins, right? Because I agree that that sense of interconnected, eternal cyclical storytelling is actually all over our notes as well. Looking at the other books Marvel released the month that MC2 properly started, it's that uncanny relaunch with 360. Are you telling me that if you take a look at any random month, you can find yourself an X-Men relaunch right around then yeah okay i believe that why not we have the avengers perez run which the busick perez run just had its uh either just had its announcement of the omnibus ring re-released or they did just re-release it so like that run that came out right around here still very talked about you have early issues into wolverine and fantastic four runs but then the 10th most sold book that month which what a fucking fluke was mutant x number one and mutant x is actually little behind the scenes something that we're very much discussing it's a quick little universe you can dip in and 
dip out. And much like Spider-Girl, which had an impact over on the pages of Earth X, so too did Mutant X with Bloodstorm. So it's, you know, there's something to be said there. And I only kind of can't take my eye off the fact that one of the things that the MC2 has in common with 2099 is part of how it survived is through the multiversity of Spider-Man, which is why that became the central tenant conversation of our show after a while. And, you know, you pointed to something really important that I'm I'm sort of shortchanging because I'm so overwhelmed with wanting to talk about every aspect of our show and then in turn everything it made me realize about myself and comics, etc. You know, when you say that we took a look at the broader picture of things, we actually spent less time than I ever could have imagined all said and done in the MC2 proper. As I mentioned earlier, we did 36 episodes of this amazing project and only the first 15 actually constitute the proper MC2 universe as it existed created by Tom DeFalco. Everything after that of those 36 episodes is something that is a touchstone back to that era. But I mean, it's even after issue like after episode five that it stops being anything but spider girl yeah i mean you know honestly 13 actually feels like kind of a lot when we think about how deeply we went in the direction that we went after mc2 basically ended it's obviously not even half but it was clear you know when those first series ended after five issues and we never saw anything have the remote staying power that Spider-Girl had, it was very obvious that we were not going to be able to look at this as a as a universe and, you know, what might have been past a certain point. It really was going to have to become about something else. So the idea that we actually spent each episode, we certainly record for three, sometimes four hours. So given that we spent that much time discussing MC2, given that even even just, you know, the idea that most of the series ended after five or six issues, how that really just hamstrings any sort of combined continuity and, uh, you know, movement of the universe as a whole. I, I, I'm just still kind of blown away that we found so much to examine because, you know, for all that you could cover a lot of issues in the ultimate universe, I don't know that at the end of the day, you would end up even though there is drastically more of it and it lasted much longer, I don't know that you would spend drastically more time covering the universe itself conceptually in order to get to the same sort of conclusions that we drew about MC2. I love that because you're saying that you could get to the heart of the ultimate universe in the same amount of time we got to the heart of the MC2 universe, but you're saying, you know, there just happens to be more of the ultimate universe. You could still establish the same idea though, just, you know, in its own way despite there being more. Yeah, I really see that. That really tracks to me. Yeah, and I think that that we found so much here speaks not just like to the idea that this is such an interesting thing, like this particular universe is so interesting, but that a lot of longer, bigger, alternate universes have this kind of common core that I think we really got to with MC2 that I think would apply to 2099, that I think would apply to Ultimate Universe 
new universe is a little bit different, but the fact that ultimately a lot of that stuff gets pretty tightly phased into, you know, present 616 continuity, there is a core that I think we really did find with MC2. And from there, you are looking at some interesting specifics and some interesting iterations that each universe has, but I don't think you're seeing anything so drastically outside the box that it's just like, we need to rethink this and cover it entirely differently. And in thinking about that, uh, the, the thing I find most exciting is the idea that that is still an option for Marvel. They still could really rethink the way that they do alternate universes in a way that really means that people like us have to completely throw out the book when we look at and examine what they're doing. And to take a look at how we tried to do that and the the curious web we tried to weave to achieve that ends, because, you know, there is something here and it's worth mining. Our first three episodes functioned as, I would say, nearly some total of what 90% of people think of when they think of the MC2. Our first three episodes, what is the MC2? Spider-Girl, J2, and A-Next Volume 1, and then our third episode being Spider-Girl, A-Next, and J2 Volume 2. It represents 12 issues of each series, and it's sort of funny because I remember learning in English class, like I can still see my English teacher saying, and Shakespeare says that it is at the peak of the third act that it becomes clear how it's all going to go. And I feel like what he could have said here was it is at the conclusion of the third episode of 37 <laughs> that it's going to be clear how it's all going to go. And, you know, I might argue it's the third episode of the 13 that comprised that MC2 focused coverage. 15. Which... I just want to remind you it's 15. It's 15. more unbelievable than you even think. <laughs> so, you know, one fifth after after about a fifth, you can, you can, and that's what I was saying, you know, we kind of knew at that point, well, it's not going to be about the MC2 when we hit that end point. And, you know, then we're going to do so much more. So, yeah, you, you know, it is pretty funny that in a lot of ways, you are just accounting for what's there more than you are discovering anything radically new, except for the fact that what we started to discover that was radically new were what was so important about Mayday and what the implications of that importance were for a broader understanding of spider people and what a broader understanding of spider people meant for a broader understanding of Marvel characters. And then by contrast, what other characters didn't get and the time and the spotlight that they didn't have for better and worse, depending on who the character was, also sort of boosted the case that there was something going on with Spider-Girl that was important that maybe could have applied to other characters. I think the the best example of it's so unfortunate she didn't get the same treatment is Wild Thing. The kind of in-between version would be J2. You know, I think we really love him. I do see a ton of potential for that character, but there was nothing so compelling written in MC2 that I'm just like, why can't we have him? And then, you know, American Dream being the one that it's like, oh, you'd really have to rethink this character to make her 
were have Mayday sort of trajectory for spider people, for American Dream to have that for Captain's America. I'm so glad that you brought up Wild Thing and that you kept J2 on the list with her because our next two episodes, episodes four and five, comprised Fantastic Four, Wild Thing, The Buzz, and Dark Devils, first and only volumes for each of those runs, though it is of note that the Fantastic Five would get another one-volume, five-issue miniseries a little bit later on. This also took us through Spider-Girl, volume four and five, with uh, covering number three and episode four. It just starts to get so numbersy, so I think I'm going to just stick with the peak number that we hit, or the, you know, the run of it. Uh, here we got through three through five, and the hard thing here is you could see the desperate ways that Tom DeFalco had had a vision for a universe that was ripped from his hands. And I don't mean that like, I mean, I do mean that in the guy's defense, because I'm going to throw some stats out about how he affected our show and, you know, what our thesis and et cetera. But like he really, there's some points in the buzz where like you can see how badly he wanted this to be a cohesive universe. And there's points in Dark Devil where you could see he really wanted the books to have different vibes. You could tell that they learned lessons with J2 that they tried to pay off with less kitty, silly, dumb in Wild Thing, but still keep the multi-story perspective. You could see that they learned no lessons from A Next and Fantastic Five is exactly the same book in some ways, beat for beat at points, and we point that out in those episodes as well. Our next few episodes, six through eight, comprise the longest run of just Spider-Girl and fuck you if you're anything else. Because episodes six gave us Spider-Girl's volume six, seven, and eight. Episode seven gave us Spider-Girl's nine, ten, and eleven. And episode eight gave us Spider-Girl volumes twelve and thirteen, and Spider-Man family number one. And, you know, it's so fucking funny that Spider-Man family number one is in this episode that feels like it was probably a little bit light, because there's really no other episode of the early adventures of Spider-Girl that we discussed where she really only has like one or two volumes. It's usually, you know, significantly more than that, as we can see. But one of the things that's interesting is that Spider-Man family story, that one-off story about Aranya would go on to so complexly affect the trajectory of the MC2 universe. And I think that is maybe the first time that I really started to see clearly what the path in front of us looked like since it was no longer going to be MC2. I think especially looking at Aranya, who, if you write down sort of demographic information, is relatively similar to Mayday. But then you see how wildly different the two characters are as youths. And then, of course, MC2 does something interesting by making Aranya more of an adult and goes further to, that's like one of the most interesting wrinkles is Aranya and her real different experience than Mayday. But then, of course, in those issues, it's sort of unclear the teen Aranya that we're looking at, if if she is in a universe that is also May's universe, or it just gets a little confusing. But that started to be where, because we can't answer the questions about what is going on in terms of universal theory, it started to be questions about what it is to be a spider person. And you're about to tell us that we start hitting into last hero and last planet standing which really gave us a chance to tie up our analysis of mc2 in a pretty great way and so that at this point we were really seeing like a big point of investigation is what's what does it mean to be a spider person 
this is where that really started to take off for me, for sure. And it's so funny that that's where the numbers fall, because it ultimately means that like episodes one through five kind of go to up together. Episode six through 10 kind of go together. Episodes 11 through 15 kind of go together. And that patterning really does make sense for Spider-Girl's world. It's unfortunate that it seems like it is to both diminishing returns, diminishing sales, and diminishing character inclusion over time. But episodes nine and 10 saw Spider-Girl volume 14 and 15 through 16 respectively, alongside Spider-Girl's very first major Ohatmu page in the AU guide for MC2, as well as Last Hero Standing and Last Planet Standing. And we really felt like Last Hero was like a really high point for the universe. And we felt really positively about Last Planet Standing. I remember, and I, you know, I was going over the sales figures again, just to kind of refresh myself, and I, I got some numbers together. And I remember seeing that like... Last Hero Standing was a weekly event where the numbers held out, and it reads kind of like that. And Last Planet Standing was a monthly event, and a bunch of other Spider-Girl things were going on at the same time. So instead of just one issue, so instead of it being like six issues in five weeks, which is a lot, especially for a book like Spider-Girl, but hear me out, and I know this is kind of bullshit, but let's say you run it across three issues, right? You do 86, 87, and 88. So then you can say that it's like 10 weeks and six and uh, eight issues, right? So it's not so bad. You can kind of like spread it out mentally over your comic math. And I feel like the lack of tightness really showed in Last Planet Standing, even if we really loved it. Oh, unequivocally. It is not tight. It is just that it is one of the places where DeFalco really gets to do the thing and show his iconographic understanding of characters without really having to pay off any ideas about continuity or you know universe building at a structural level in which we really have to care about what happens to the universe specifically at that point even though there is no story-wide like things shifted in mc2 we kind of really just stopped doing mc2 at that point like mayday still exists in earth 982 and that will become important again when we get into spider-verse stuff but between here and spider-verse the idea that the mc2 is a place like the 616 universe that has its own stuff going on and a full robust cast of superheroes and its own internal life that matters so little it's almost not even worth mentioning uh, for this time after Last Planet Standing and because it's basically just May Day with some very minor exceptions that's fine but Last Planet is really kind of last call for Tom DeFalco to play in that sandbox in the way we saw it when this all came into being. And I think that's sort of reflected in some of the numbers. The contents of episodes 11 through 13 are Spider-Girl's Amazing Spider-Girl run, which was meant to be like a landmark return to form one last hoorah to see if it works after the success of Last Hero Standing. And each one of those episodes, 11 through 13, also contains a miniseries set in the MC2 universe, Avengers Next, which is nearly a perfect rehashing of the first Avengers Next. Fantastic Five, which is in some ways nearly a perfect rehashing of the original Fantastic Five. Jesus. And then American Dream, which we have feelings about both positive and negative. But the thing I need to point out here is if you take a look at episodes two through four, that's Spider-Girl and A-Next and J2, and that's Spider-Girl and Fantastic Five and Wild Thing. And those episodes are very 
long. And there's a lot of talking about the way it comes together to paint a picture of the MC2 universe. And I specifically remember when we were talking about 11 through 13, thinking like, how in the hell does this issue of Fantastic Five connect with the stuff that's going on? And we wound up doing like, you know, more Spider-Girl issues and focusing less on the miniseries. And I think the thing that I realize and looking at these parallel numbers, one, two, and three, 11, 12, and 13, is that in the early issues, it felt like it was a universe that involved Spider-Girl in the lead role, but also had the Fantastic Five and J2 and a number of other characters. But by 11 through 13, it felt like, goddamn, may one of these miniseries please save Spider-Girl. Yeah. And it's funny even that I, I, you know, I was just reading something about uh, Ben and Alicia Masters as parents of a Cree and Skrull child in present continuity and thinking about seeing Ben as a father in MC2. Again, just that sort of prescience that Tom DeFalco has about what would be important for the future of these characters. You see it here, but unfortunately, you know, for so many little reasons, it just doesn't work in the same way. And at all times, even when Mayday is kind of at her most repetitive, least well-written, she still has something that makes her interesting in a way that unfortunately the connection just isn't there for the other characters, even when we're seeing things about them that are important and important in a way that only somebody with Tom DeFalco's expertise about Marvel Comics superheroes could really understand and elucidate for the readers. And I think he thought he was doing that. You know, I, I such a number of conditionals. It's like existentialist discussion. But I think I thought I saw Tom DeFalco smile. <laughs> and um, the thing that gets me is as I'm looking at this, I'm realizing that part of what had to happen is Tom DeFalco always operated best with kind of a distraction. And early on, two, three, four, five, there's distractions, but there's so many and they're so overwhelming that Spider-Girl suffers for it. Six, seven, eight, even into nine and ten, those issue eras thrived because Tom was distracted by a background thing at a time. Granted, sometimes it was the god-awful of Spider-Boy, but sometimes it was the whatever else was going on, whether it was the Black Tarantula or it was Buzz or it was Kane. Even when we thought it was kind of eye-roll, we came around on it. And once you get to the tail end of volume 13, which nosedives into the 14-15 pair, that is a very single thought from Tom DeFalco. You get to Ilan and April and just all the ways in which April, while being interesting and while we loved her and while I was really into our discussions about her and then ultimately being very adamant about discussing her failures, I think she permanently damaged the brand. Not ours, theirs. Our brand is fine. <laughs> we survived somehow. You know, I, you know, I think it's right. That is the one of the biggest swings and ultimately it ends up being a blow to the head. But that is 
when I think about how I want Mayday really present in 616 continuity, you know, I want her to get to be in the Spider-Verse films and get her own, you know, Sony Marvel book. Like the first thing I think about is May and just we got to get May period. And then the next thing I think about is April. I look at something like Summer of Symbiotes and I think to myself, if she were present in the same way that she was in Web Warriors, how amazing would it be to bring April back in some capacity in Summer of Symbiotes? And how would April and the semi-unnamed Dusk version of uh, the Venom symbiote, how would those things be different if we could put them in current continuity, you know, post-King in Black symbiote continuity? It's just, it's so interesting to me. And the only reason why I don't think about it more is specifically that, you know, the fight right now is get Mayday there. Yeah, you know, one symbiote magical spider totem creature at a time. Of course. And I think you can even see in the speed our coverage took for 14 and 15, we were barreling toward a conclusion. And it's funny because we were also bracing for a massive shift in the other side of the show. And there were a lot of discussions while I was taking my notes about ways the show needed to change. And of course, I mean, bigger X, not, you know, sub X with the AU in it. And, you know, it's uh, how did we never call it AUX, AUX? Fuck us. Give it time. So I remember that that was such a pivotal point of transformation for our show. And I don't think that it showed in our coverage that we were feeling maybe a little bit frustrated. But I know that by the point we reached episodes 14 and 15, and that's Amazing Spider-Girl 25 through 30, Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man all together one through four, which is like, I think all there was, uh, since Spectacular Spider-Girl one through eight, as well as the final three digital issues, nine through 11, and all of this got recollected in some form before being followed up by a second volume of Spectacular Spider-Girl containing four issues as well as the pivotal to discuss but I'm not sure how pivotal to read Spider-Girl the end. Uh, I, that is such a an apt explanation. Pivotal to discuss not so, so sure it's pivotal to read. Yeah, if you just know that at the end that there's basically a, a like an escape rope, like an easy way out. Almost like Tom DeFalco realized that the general wider audience of Spider-Girl didn't follow him into this April darkness. And as a result, he was kind of trying to give audiences a way out so they could bring her back at some point if they chose to. And I appreciate the escape rope, right? Like anybody who's ever been in Mount Moon, their first time playing through Red and Blue, you really appreciate that escape rope. But I think that the ultimate reality is April pushed the series to far even though she was great but she like was an evil version of may and i'm just i don't know i think that now that we're in the age of the multiverse you're just so accustomed to having to deal with an evil version of a character that you love but because we are so accustomed to the multiverse sometimes that character is just in like two episodes altogether mm. just because you know you blow through the multiverse maybe they're a dream sequence character you just do it now and i love that but april dragged on forever and to get rid of her took such a 
fucking broad stroke. I almost wish in some ways that they revealed that there was really no April ever. It was an elaborate hoax and she was a programmed symbiote and they fed her some new DNA and she became someone new and then she sacrificed herself because she always remembered her happy time as April. Something that made it less like, oh, well, great. How do you bring May back from this? Because that must be why no one will deal with it. I mean, the other question is, how do you bring Mary Jane and Peter back from the fact that they were like, we have basically a second daughter, though we did not opt to have a child in the traditional way. Somebody took our genetics and made one, and we we have to love her and care for her. She's annoying us. Let's be subtly abusive. That really was the thing that, uh, you know, started to kill me about it. And then the fact that April just went so evil. I loved the idea. It was one of those points that I thought could make MC2 really interesting and Mary Jane and Peter of that world so interesting is them really dealing with the existence of a daughter they didn't ask for. And I loved when it started and they, you know, said, we, we just are all family. And really quickly, it went to Peter suspects that she's the clone, so he treats her really terribly as though she asked to be born and asked to be a clone or you know had any sleeper agent aspect to her and the craziest thing is she never does she's never programmed to knowingly trying to betray them until they really push her over the edge into insanity and it just makes me so sad that part of the reason that comes up is that they're just not very kind to her they're actually pretty horrible to her and it just feels so wrong on so many levels but that that set up where she's in the tank and they get her out and then they agree that they're going to be a family and she starts to sort of feel out how she's going to be a member of that family that all really worked for me and I really thought what we were going towards was this weird quirky thing where they have a symbiote daughter and instead it is just like so off the rails and sad and unhappy and it just all leads up to this like uh, you know retcon go back to the future and, and fix it so that this all ended before it really could begin. And I think the rudderlessness that was a result of not really knowing how to transition ourselves out of this period. You know, it was not just the book that kind of suffered as a result of the transformation. We weren't sure what to do because we knew we weren't done talking and we knew we wanted to get to Spider-Verse because she was in it. But I knew that I wasn't ready to just talk Spider-Verse. We had also discovered that we could talk about a couple of other miniseries, especially early on. I remember remembered that there was an attempt to bring Thunderstrike over by Tom DeFalco. And I remembered that there was, of course, the Captain America Corps miniseries, though I wasn't sure how it related. And then this was the start of someone needed to tell me no, and that was not going to be TK that day. <laughs> it's not one of my strong suits. So for episodes 16 and 17, I went really off my fucking rocker and TK was like so excited to smash the rocker to bits. And we covered uh, sort of like a what's next talk about our future plans and I remember listening back to it recently to get some notes and it's just sort of like I don't know we're gonna talk about it right and then we talked about Thunderstrike 1 through 5 a little background on Thunderstrike and his dad we talked about Captain America Corps 1 through 5 and why so much of that book was terrible but goddamn, did we love Kiyoshi uh, we talked about the one panel of MC2 from Avengers <laughs> Volume 4 number 2 great 
winners. We talked about the single panels of Avengers Asgard's, I'm sorry, Thor's Asgard Avenger. I can't even talk anymore. Mm. Thor Asgard's Avenger and the one panel of Avengers Academy number 20, which is the only panel of Avengers Academy that Thunderstrike ever appears in before hopping over to a goddamn horrible experience mm. reading him in the pages of Fear Itself, Backup Stories, The Home Front 5 through 7. What a miserable experience looking back on so much of 16 and 17. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, there's got to be a low point, right? Yeah, and it's unfortunate that it's like the middle. It's It sucks because it's like it leads us into what I think is some of our like most celebratory creative happiness. But so I will say, you know, it was Thunderstrike where we really were like, okay, what we're doing is covering more than just alternate versions of these characters, but we're starting to look at what this particular creator said is important about a character such that when they when an alternate version appears from the one that we know what are we what are we seeing and what what was imported and what was left on the table and what does that say about that character and you know thankfully for thunderstrike there's not such a history of thunderstrikes and there's not such a you know a, a fandom that you really have to ask a lot of questions but it did really start i don't want to say it started us on the path it was the first time that we got to be a little more in depth about the examination like i said it started i think around that spider-man family time looking at aranya but kevin masterson was really where we saw two very similar and very different versions of a character written by the same person for two different universes and what does that mean and that as a a question leading us into an exam examination of spider people of wolver people that's where we really got to exercise those muscles for the first time. Because that's really what did it for me. You know, there were things about 1617 that they were really interminable, especially following 1415. And because we were never really done, every time we were like, we're done, we kept being sure we weren't. So every one of these, it was going to be hard, tearful goodbyes. That's why this one, I have no emotions. I'm dead inside from saying goodbye to Mayday Parker so many times. There's nothing left. Okay, I could fill a well that would bring baby Jessica to the surface. I am so out of tears at this point. That's how much I've cried for this woman. Okay, I am done. And so I have I have no sadness in me. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm looking back at some of these. Well, I guess it's time to say goodbye to May Day. And I'm like, why? why? Right. So then we get to 1819 and it's Spider-Verse. And then we go really off the fucking walls after this. But what happened was we took the lessons of Spider-Verse and all of the stuff we had seen in the first, I guess, uh, 17 episodes. And it's really funny that this is eight. This is like 36 to 37 episodes because this marks 37 because that makes 18 the midpoint. And 18 was really where the thesis was born. Mayday fit Spider-Verse because a spider was a specific thing, which is why Spider-Man 2099, a remnant of Spider-Man, a remnant of 2099, can continue 
continue to exist because a Spider-Man is a specific thing. And it's why Spider-Woman, as she is known now, can continue to exist from MC2 because a Spider-Man is a certain specific thing. And Spider-Verse showed us that in such an eloquent, deft way, despite far too many tie-ins and diminishing quality sequels. But that midway point gave birth to a whole new way of thinking about character, character interaction, and the way these things play on both the page and in the fans' mind. Yeah, I don't have anything to add yet. All right, cool. So the Spider-Verse look at Secret Wars, I think, might have marked perhaps close to what I I felt was like an actual goodbye to May Day. Like, that was where we looked at the Tom DeFalco stories from Secret Wars, the MC2 backup, which we were like, yeah, he gets one more story, and it is just a fucking note-for-note drawer story. And we had gotten that lovely Uncle Ben story with Gilf Uncle Ben from Spider-Verse, and then they did him dirty, but before they did him dirty, he gets that crazy, really cool family dick scene with Normie and who's oh, the other with, person? Uh, is it it's Phil, right? Phil, thank you. Yeah, with yeah. Normie and Phil, and it's so I don't even know, man. That's eighteen and nineteen were a really high point of serious creativity, and not that I think we ever took the thesis less than serious, but like there is a certain point where I'm looking at a couple of these episodes in a row, and I'm like, oh, we gave into the madness. <laughs> well, and it's funny you say that because if I can't say no to Nico's insane ideas, uh, episode 20 is where I am just a problematic enabler. Yeah. Okay. So episode 20 is literally a level of toxicity in my psyche I have never achieved before. And it deformed me. This is actually the moment in research. Okay. So funny fucking story. I left two or three things off of this list that I thought could have been added, right? In some ways, I feel like you could actually stretch this list to 38, making this episode 39. And, you know, it's kind of like every good run of a comic. There's those issues you could kind of call tie-ins because they vaguely connect, even if they're not directly connected. But I would say our study of the totemic symbology of the relationship between Daredevil and Elektra in our Elektra triptych look, looking at Man Without Fear, Woman Without Fear, and Elektra Lives Again, really fit the idea of what we were doing here, even though it came way before this. Way, way before this. Actually, okay, April, so not that long earlier. But the other thing that I almost put on this list was the hyper-personification of the demon that evidently I think runs the Marvel Omnibus Department. (laughs) That is the only dark sorcerer that prays to the dark gods of the Conan universe or whatever. (laughs) Because I was like so out of control and like i seriously thought i had uncovered some sort of play it was conan gate and i just was so sure i was gonna win a comic pulitzer or something i was just like this is hard-hitting journalism straight out of the diamonds preview guide we had a fun time discussing the conan stuff though i mean yeah completely unhinged but like i still think that what you posited is like not out of the realm of insanity not in the realm of insanity and then also we like got to do a little bit of coverage of some weird characters
characters that I don't know. I don't know what will become of them, but I'm glad that we took a little dip in the pool. And if that was all to expose uh, the great omnibus conspiracy, so much the better. So that Conan special came out right around the time we did the Asgardians of the Galaxy. So it uh, comes up not too far from now. So it really could have gone on the list. Uh, We are almost at that. But this list, okay, at episode 20, I had really done a bit of a deep dive into discovering perhaps what builds the argument that Spider-Girl could have sustained her own universe. It didn't make sense to me that they truly were putting this completely untested idea out into the universe. That's not what Marvel does. They are often perhaps overexcited about the potential popularity of an idea before it has been tested, sure, but they're not willing to stake an entire line and like dozens, if not hundreds of jobs, right? So they had to have some kind of history with spider characters and I fucking found it. And it's this hideous spider bug and it's what if Spider-Man had had a child with Mary Jane. And the thing that it pointed out to us was that in 1989 and 1990, the idea that Spider-Man could have a child was just so fucking silly and ridiculous that the only way they could do it was by making it a mutant and funny. Yeah, it is our first glimpse at the two of them as parents, but even compared to, like, we get to the 90s when they actually have a child, and even at that point, while the idea that they would do it was not a joke, the editorial decision is ultimately made to gack the baby and and not do it, and from there, we ultimately end up with the one more day or brand new day situation where the marriage itself is reversed, and Peter goes back to being like a much younger seeming person so it's sort of funny that the first posit that peter is getting older and perhaps in the foreseeable future could be a dad starts as what a fucking joke and then marvel kind of pays that off by being like it is in fact a total fucking joke and speaking of jokes i was so desperate not to finish this project and talk about spider geddon which i had foreseen would be the logical conclusion of the project that I did sort of continue to try and pad things out so alongside episode 20's inclusion of the appearances of Spider Baby I we also looked at Amazing Spider-Man and Web Warriors which were the likely lead up to Spider-Geddon but I had wanted to show TK some Black Tarantula I had loved growing up and so for episode 21 we did a bit of a Black Tarantula spotlight taking a look at Amazing Spider-Man 436 to 439 some of Tom DeFalco's final issues as well as Daredevil Annual Number 1 and Daredevil Blood of the Tarantula. And, you know, I thought it was kind of fun to get to know Black Tarantula better. Oh, unequivocally, one of the the characters that we really fell in love with, besides Mayday, ended up being, like, we knew we were going to love J2, and we kind of did, even though we recognize how silly he is. Uh, Wild Thing really is just kind of a standout in that regard. But then, you know, Chesbro and Black Tarantula, it went from, like, a silly thing about how this dude sort of speaks to certain uh, preferences and interests that we share regarding stupidly possibly unhealthily muscled men and that being reflected in comic books to the ridiculousness of his powers and how they are displayed to like wait a second even though that stuff is really silly like silly stuff like that in comic books is kind of a hallmark so if we accept that as taken what are we looking at here and is this 
actually like maybe kind of a compelling character and if we like him in mc2 what does that say about the the version from the main marvel universe and is there anything here worth looking at and it was one of those things where it's not life-changing but it really i don't think this is a particular character and corner of the marvel universe that a lot of people are are looking at with a ton of focus and that is completely fine marvel universe is enormous there's always room but i'm glad we did because it is he is a super cool character and he's one of those characters that has potential that goes beyond you know if any good writer picked this character up they could retcon him and make him cool if any writer picked this character up as he is there's enough to work with that you could make a pretty cool anti-hero villain hero whatever you really wanted to do i agree and it inspired a lot of discussion about what is the heart of a tapped character or an untapped character potential and how we even see those wasted despite their popularity we took a look at alongside spider baby the earliest incarnation of female wolverine that we could find in the form of wolverina or logana from which she sounds like a fucking star wars character from what the and we compared her with wild thing of course our precious rena from mc2 and with laura the ever famous wolverine formerly known as x23 and we took a look at the fact that the female wolverine experience is still pretty close to the wolverine experience the female wolverine has female trope hallmarks unfortunately but she is really close to the wolverine experience in the same way that may is pretty close to the spider experience and it really was a great opportunity to then take a look at many 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 fucking spider girls (laughs) yeah but there was only one that we loved even remotely close to the way we loved mayday oh and you know it's really funny because at first i was like who is he thinking about we only really love two spider girls that much and it's you know annie and it's sakura oh he means annie and (laughs) that's who we started talking about at this point and it's so funny because i do think this discussion of annie i almost regret how like little i knew about her during that discussion though you know it was a great pleasure to be surprised by what a phenomenal world renew your vows is you know it's that that spider girls of the multiverse discussion is so quickly sweeped in with all of the unseen mc2 stories because we didn't think we had enough for a full episode and then we kind of swept in the as guardians of the galaxy kickoff and then we talk about as guardians of the galaxy in its entirety in the next episode and i wish i'd realized that that wizard magazine from 92 sorry wizard magazine number 92 interview with tom defalco was going to go there because it was switched around and by episode 24 i really feel like we were at a place where we were running out of the juice that represented mc2 and we're running on kind of the fumes of spider girl i don't regret any of our coverage but it is really easy for me to see where the tension that we had built so much of our argument on was beginning to wear thin because spider girl herself could only carry so much of it I partially agree. I mean, I think we were, you know, at that point, really just com- basically completely divorced from MC2. And insofar as like, yeah, we had sort of lost uh, content ability to really root ourselves in Mayday. But I do think that starting in 20 with that what if and our insane justification for why this matters at all, we pretty much staked our flag in this. We're going broader with it. We're looking at Totemic 
symbology of characters and core ideas about them, be they silly, uh, you know, rejected by editorial, whatever, that are coming up in ways that we need to, as readers, as fans, as creatives ourselves, explore and understand why these things are important, why they might be important for us to see, why the business, from the business side of things, people might feel as though these are concepts that need to kind of be pushed to the background. We we dug into fertile ground with <laughs> Spider Baby, and um, I while I do think that we sort of, uh, for the sake of the mission, always tried to bring it back to May Day, we, we sort of found this path by which it always came back to May Day because she is the original reflection of this idea, but we really could take it in some other interesting directions. Again, the 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 what the that is Wolverina established this even more fully because we got to do it for Logan. And as out there as it all might seem, when we get to this next bit of coverage, I think for me, it really spoke to the idea that we did know what we were doing and we were on to something. It might not be the most important, you know, examination of Marvel characters and universe ever done, but this next batch really sort of had me in the zone of trying to understand what is important about a particular character. We hit this special sweet spot with 24 and our discussion of Thunderstrike in the pages of his Guardians of the Galaxy and the ways that a character can survive uh, a weird creation and the thing that we were forced to reckon with with as Guardians of the Galaxy was what happens when a great book is nothing but crossovers and it took so much of what as Guardians of the Galaxy could have been but I did enjoy the discussion but that's not what I'm talking about no I know what you're talking about <laughs> I want to preface that I feel like 25 and 26 really really should have come after what follows it. I realized that what happened was I discovered this thing and I kept telling TK I wanted to do it till he relented and he didn't need much convincing but my insistence that it be episode 25 because it'll be so cool something that I learned about this project is that I can think something's really cool but if nobody can read it it doesn't fucking matter and slingers is so impossible to obtain and there's an issue zero that you get from a magazine okay and then there's four versions of issue one that total like 92 pages and then i don't know that almost anything from two through 12 matters I want to argue, but yeah, it kind of doesn't. And it feels like our excitement, the the way we built up zero and one, and that it was so daring in the way they told it, and when we realized how close it was to Spider Girl's release, and it was like we we saw this picture, like I don't know, because there's something to be said about art that people don't always get, and the ways in which that doesn't make the art bad, but it sometimes makes the art a little bit harder to discuss, and this is gonna sound insane but like I think about Maxwell's urban hangout suite and I think about how people really got you know that creation of language and art he was trying to facilitate with mellow smooth this idea of a vibe that we can all feel good with and it's till the top till the cops come knocking and it's uh, you know something something and it's ascension and it's this study in cool and sexy and it's the fucking satin pajamas and it's this amazing way 
to express cool in a couple of short video snippets. And I think that's when he had his unplugged. And then my favorite Maxwell album, Embrya, is critically acknowledged. Their critics definitely reviewed it. That happened. And it was it's released record that people like songs from. But Embrya is not what he thought it was going to be as a follow-up and response to the creation of language and artistic flow that he set out to forge with Urban Hangout Suite. And, you know, there's a lot of artists who have that one popular first record, and even if the second record is a success, it's not the thing that the world expected, and maybe it's not the thing the artist wanted to be. I don't know how to put it, but, like, the idea of Slingers, the pitch of Slingers, the potential, zero, one, the daring release format, the argument that it's four people that are really just one other person, but they're their own people, and Spider-Man always plays an antagonistic role. There's so much cool in the potentiality of Slingers that just never gets paid off, and it's still personal cool to us, like the way Embrya is still my favorite Maxwell record, even though the rest of the world doesn't get it. But I feel, and that's not that, you know, no one else in the world gets it. I don't think this, you know, one dumb white guy thinks he understands Embrya and no one else does. But I recognize that it's perhaps not his best loved record. I'm just forced to think about what Slingers could have been with a defter, more Tom DeFalco-esque hand. And I mean, I think one of the really interesting thing about Slingers is it does, it's probably one of the ones that I would say, while you don't need to read it, particularly if you will read Zero and One or even the first arc, you will really kind of start to understand, uh, or you'll have a very clear example of what we're talking about when we talk about totemic symbology. The fact that these characters are each taking a name that Peter Parker took when he was not Spider-Man, but was still trying to embody what Spider-Man was, that they took these names and that these characters contributed their own ideas to what it meant to be a spider person by virtue of the fact that they were borrowing these names and going out and fighting crime. Even if it doesn't work, to see what is done and to kind of follow us in mining the concept, it, uh, I, I think it really is interesting. And I think that it offers you a way to not just do the what might have been thing, but to really see what the tools look like when they are taken out of the toolbox and applied and how, you know, even when you have great technique with the tools or even when you have great tools, if the technique is not there, you're going to produce kind of an inferior product, but you can still see all of the elements. And I think the other thing that's really funny and fascinating about it is, you know, as we were covering it right around that time, those characters who barely appear after Slingers were coming back in the pages of Spider-Man Beyond. There was a synergy there and, you know, that synergy is part of what convinced us that it was worth putting out because it's actually, you know, real life happens between recordings and sometimes it happens between segments and, you know, moreover, it happens between recording days. You know what I mean? So we wind up with a... Audience, respond, please. So we wind up with these huge gaps and there was a big space between Slingers episode one and Slingers episode two. And it made us wonder, me wonder at least, if maybe we just compress it down even harder. Because originally I had pitched it as like four episodes. And in the course of discussing it, we just kept crunching it down and crunching it down. And I learned a lot about making shows through the process of this. And it's why I felt so confident that we could build the show out into YouTube and expand our format. 
because part of my realization was that, you know, we don't need to be all or nothing. And that's something that I think is the nature of comics, right? I think back to when every issue of X Factor used to basically say, and if you don't make your friends buy four copies of every issue of X Factor, you're the reason the book is canceled. And that is unfortunately comics culture. It is fight to stay alive because it has to act as though it's a minority. And it is, you know, comics don't sell a majority. Like, it's not like literally more than half the people in the world are buying comics at any given time. You know what I mean? Even where they are most successful in Japan, those numbers can't come close enough to offsetting the lack of people in America buying, right? So I think with this realization that comics have always held us to an all or nothing standard and projected a sense of all or nothingism onto us, I sometimes wind up under the impression that I need to be all or nothing about my comics. And when in the course of our discussion of Slingers, I came to realize that it can't be the discussion of Slingers in one episode, then zero and one in the next episode, two through seven in the next episode, then eight through 12 as a finale. Like when I realized that that breakdown, oh my God, that there's a fucking nanny and orphan maker shit in this. Um, When I realized that breakdown, I came to realize that like, you've got to be willing to let go of your plans. And the narrative of the story and the way you realize it through editing and like listening back, there is really this idea that we all get in our heads that like what you need to do is get your friends and rent a house and the music will come. You'll find the album. You'll record it and it will be brilliant and you'll record it all in those three days and you'll never ever have to worry about it ever again because you'll record it all and it'll be perfect and you'll remix it. That's just not life. And like even the bands that tell that story, even when it was that good, it was never that good. And so much of this process allowed me to see in my own microcosmic little way what it must have been like making Spider-Girl. The point of it getting away from them, the release schedule getting too complicated, trying to do too much such that it diluted the intent of the idea. The boundarylessness of this medium, because podcasting for me should push boundaries. I could really understand in this moment, in Slingers, this thing that came out around the same time as Spider-Girl. I could really see where Tom DeFalco was coming from on a lot of this. And Slingers is such a great example of all and nothing. Marvel was so all with this concept. The fact that it was the issue zeros that are all telling this, or the all the issue ones that are telling this enormous hybrid story. The very important issue zero that is not really accessible, but Marvel saying, like, this is a big thing that you really ought to care about. And then just the nothing of audience response and then Marvel shutting it down. You know, we didn't get Ricochet, Johnny, the mutant, showing up in the pages of X-Men and sort of building on his Ricochet post-Peter Parker legacy. Once these guys were gone, they were pretty much gone. I mean, they do appear every now and then, but it really was for years the kind of nothing. And even when we just saw them recently and beyond, I don't know that that is the start of anything. I can tell you that if I, you know, had my druthers, I Ricochet is a character that I would pick up in a heartbeat because a young mutant who is inspired by Peter Parker, who's inspired by Spider-Man and really built his crime fighting legacy off that is not something we get in the way that we get it with the particular character of Ricochet. You, we have things like uh, Spider-Man 
Spider-Man and the X-Men where Spider-Man goes and teaches at the school because Logan asked him to. But that's really Spider-Man dealing with the students. And I don't know that we walked away from that with any single student being like, that's the career I'm going to emulate. And that being a thing that's recognizable, for instance, on Krakoa. But there's something in Ricochet that is really still, to me, tangibly interesting about his connection to Spider-Man. But the fact of the matter is that just, you know, that doesn't come up. That's just something I'm positing to you all now. When they're done, they're done. And yet everything Nico said just about what you can take away just from reading this and thinking about it meta-contextually, ignoring the fact that it is not a stellar story, doesn't make a ton of sense. There are some great Easter eggs and some moments that kind of, you know, gesture at things that are cool. But like, this is so much more about the interesting story of the existence of this thing. And for me as well, what that says about the other ideas that we were discussing within the context of the show. And it really is hard to understress. No, wait. It's really hard to stress enough how much Slingers really did kind of reshape the show for me by letting go of my expectations and by sort of recognizing that I'm touched by Slingers. And like, yeah, exactly what you said. If I had my way, if Marvel was like, write what you want right now, I would be like, can I write something X-Men with Ricochet, please? I'll be real good. I'll do a great job. You'd be blown away, right? So good. I'll be the Ricochet guy. And it, uh, <clears throat> I want to be the Jason Lowe of Ricochet in the X-Men, the way he has done so much good for Madrox and Slingers in being something that took time to transform. It's actually around this time that TK and Kevo successfully convinced me to revamp the show. And so right as we got into Spider-Geddon, we really changed our release schedule. We went from three, like two hour releases a week to like three hour and a half releases a week to two two hour releases a week to two hour and a half. Like, you know, if you're listening, you can see that like <laughs> we started to decrease the number of episodes and decrease the amount of material all in preparation of making this switch. And it's just so funny that I guess I am finding a way to get emotional that I didn't expect. I didn't realize how much the Spider-Girl format, what we developed for AU, really did become the format that we're following for Exodus for Podcast, where, you know, live on YouTube, where we talk about an idea and we pivot to the next idea in a very conversational fashion instead of having these, you know, structured rooms. And I think what we had to do to maintain all of Spider-Verse and all of Spider-Geddon in their entireties really was the launch point for that format ability. And from, it's just, it's so funny to think about Slingers because I, I really am enthusiastic. I was enthusiastic about it at the time too, but in terms of like stories that we crack, it is a tough, it's a tough one to get through. The, the energy for the actual story itself really isn't there. So when we show up at the start of Spider-Geddon after this, I think we were both in a really interesting place uh, with both a lot of energy and interest. As you mentioned, things about the show were starting to change. And then we come to this thing that really is, if we're getting back to what the show was originally about, which is you know MC2 and Mayday, now we're back at our next opportunity to see what's going on with Mayday and to always have that core concept in our back pocket brought to the forefront for a second. With all of the big change that we saw in the character after the first Spider-Verse and the change to her status quo that that brought about, I really was kind of on the edge of my seat about Spider-Geddon. And that's all I will say as, as we continue to discuss this. And Spider-Geddon took us two episodes. I somehow don't, I 
you know, I actually looked back at the numbers and it's because the Spider-Verse episode is literally nearly the longest episode we did. Our longest episode came in at like two hours and 53 minutes or something. It's fucking gross. Mm-hmm. But we did Spider-Geddon in two episodes, two particularly long episodes, mm-hmm. actually. So not like anything short. But Spider-Geddon really was, I think, the moment where we looked at each other and said, okay, we are winding down. It was the point where I feel like I don't think we ever stopped talking powerfully or positively. I don't think we ever stopped sharing a passionate love of the stories we were telling and looking back at. But I think we recognized, like any good storytellers, even when you're telling stories about other stories, you realize that there has to be a point where you stop telling these stories. And after Spider-Geddon, we really don't talk about spiders all that often. (laughs) Well, I think in part because it starts to become about something different. And it had already been about something different. And it's it's really funny because I don't think that I would have done too much differently. I would have reshuffled the schedule. I might have added a few episodes and maybe deleted one or two. Nothing. Maybe not even like deleted any content. Just would have edited it a little differently. But the way this thing came into being, right, is very different than the final product it would become. And a lot of times, you know, you can only go back and readdress situations. And Marvel has become super famous for possibly contaminating really good stories with that and we've talked about it on a bunch of different programs throughout X's for podcast but one of the big things we're talking about a lot lately is when these forever stories come out or like when X-Men first class was coming out how did that change the stories that existed well like you know those adventures never happened so could they inform the character all this time up until now no so it's sort of like if writers now start referring to that recently introduced past event it had to have happened now because it couldn't have affected all of the previous things so maybe it's some kind of time magic something else changed something else in time and now this is that i don't know because you know butterfly effect every time something like that happens there's a way to explain it you know tony stark changed his past and that's why this time gambit and rogue have this adventure instead right and i can follow that but it sort of pushes the limits of what these stories can do and it over time we start to say yeah that really that really weakened the efficacy of that storytelling right there and I feel like if we had gone back and read enough Deadpool to make Deadpool Samurai able to stand the totemic symbology test truly for Deadpool and if we'd gone back to read enough Wolverine and actually read X-23's adventures before she became Wolverine and then read Wolverine's adventures in her new far superior named form could we have traced that energy yeah but it would have made it such a different show that it's like we need to take what we learned here and we need to take the show we made and we need to apply that knowledge to what we do next because what we've made is amazing but like to do the totemic symbology justice would take so much back reading that we can't insert any more than marvel can insert an adventure that didn't take place in 1988 (laughs) i appreciate that reference deadpool samurai though for our show's first proper manga and for our show's 
first proper non-U.S. primary release was a staggering success, huge amounts of fun, a really hard to understand how we got to it because we'd read the thing that dealt with Sakura Spider in the Spider-Verse prior to recording it and then decided to do the Deadpool stuff and then realized we needed to do some other stuff first. So the thing we read Deadpool for wound up not coming out for another like five segments across two episodes. So, you know, I don't know. But Deadpool Samurai featuring Sakura Spider volumes one and two coming in an episode 29 really was again. Okay, it's time to wind down. But, you know, the thing that I'll say about it is I think that one of the things that has been best about doing this concept is while it is broadly about spider people because they are the most present, it is the character who, you know, because Spider-Man is such a popular property for Marvel, but there really is, quote, only one Spider-Man. When we get into the idea of the totem as it appears in continuity, but then also the broader idea of a totem when we get into core character concepts it's pretty easy to look at spider-man and you know do everything from like what is everybody's interpretation of with great power must come great responsibility versus like look at you know the 1602 spider-man look at the noir spider-man like it's a version it's just different versions there's so much to explore but then you know when we take characters like thunderstrike wolverine and then deadpool but also Sakura Spider, when we take a break from just putting the focus on Spider-Man specifically, and when we bring other characters into the mix as reflections of the idea, as companions to the idea, as interacting with the idea, I think every time it reveals a new facet to the gem and creates an opportunity, you know, Deadpool is sort of in a lot of ways like the ultimate alternate alternate to Spider-Man in so far as while there are many alternate versions in the multiverse, Deadpool is kind of an alternate version of himself at all times, regardless of whether it is technically the same character issue to issue. He changes so much as needed by plot, writerly voice, all of these things that you can have him issue to issue seeming like a different character and putting that kind of chameleon in a format that is pretty different than the standard Marvel format, talking about manga, and then taking a character like Sakura Spider, who is a different version of the core concept of a spider person, it really, while yes, it was a wind down, I think in some ways it really was a climax of exploring all of the different ways to bring these ideas together. Different character, different format, different medium, and you know, it was just, it was so fun like we i mean so much of this has been great to read but a lot of it has been a challenge because it is not always really great uh you know it is tough to go through a whole episode with just three really solid arcs there's always some like really important stuff to critique uh, and a lot of that comes from the fact that it's over 20 years old things have just changed but deadpool being a much more current modern uh just really fun well executed piece i think in so many ways yeah if, if what comes next is the wind down this really is the the height of where it all comes together because i look back on deadpool samurai and feel even more positive on it despite the almighty appearance 
But I actually look back on Renew Your Vows more positive negative, like much more positive because I thought I would hate Annie and I thought I would resent her parents and ultimately I love them. But it actually has the same disappointing trajectory as Spider-Girl. It loses its focus. It gets kind of muddy in the middle. Then there's this weird prolonged outro that could have been great, but nobody gave it the time or energy it deserved outside of the direct creators. And Renew Your Vows being our episode 30 and 31, you know, I look at this and it's the zero volume from Secret Wars. And then it's the first two volumes featuring Ryan Stegman. And then it's the third and fourth volumes by the multiple Jodies, funny enough. And then we have Spider-Verse. There was enough room in the two episodes about Renew Your Vows five volumes across almost 30 issues that there was still room for six one-off Spider-Verse issues in the same two episodes. It just feels like ultimately Renew Your Vows got the same disrespect that Spider-Girl got, which is she's not a whole character. She doesn't get a whole book. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the other thing that comes into play is that we start to see these characters interacting in the Spider-Verse. And so there's always this tantalizing hope of like they're expanding beyond the kind of limited horizons that editorial has offered them. But the thing that we're really wrestling with now, and one of the things that has really helped me to feel comfortable to end it is we are in the middle of another Spider-Verse and it is becoming increasingly clear that while these two characters in particular will be plot important, there's nobody who is saying like, I need to tell the next chapter in Mayday or Annie's story. Like I need their voice to be seen and updated and brought to the forefront. And so really it just said to, has said to me that like, although we could technically, you know, in the immediate do another couple episodes uh, regarding the Dan Slott's present Spider-Man, which is a Spider-Verse-y type thing, although it's not in the name at all. Uh, both characters appear and have some conceptual reference. We're just on top of the fact that it is a lack of the same content. It also is a very clear thing that is being said, you know, this is not their time. This is not their story. And that's very helpful because while that is something that I really want and it is something that I maybe thought I was some expectations were being set that it was reasonable to want it. It's not happening right now. And that might even best be showcased in how easy it was for us to, I don't want to say lose focus because that's not what happened. We just you took a little holiday break and we did a little bit of holiday programming, but that we didn't feel like it was breaking our stride should speak volumes about the fact that it was definitely you know, and I don't mean this as a damnation, but like, fuck, I wish Spider-Verse would end for a minute. Go away so I can miss you. Yeah. Go away. Like, please. And it's because there have been diminishing returns. The Jed McKay Spider-Verse is probably my least favorite Spider-Verse. Spider-Geddon is good. Spider-Verse is better. I liked all the Ox stuff in Spider-Geddon. This made me, this whole project made me really come to appreciate things about Doc Ock, although I have no idea what's going on with him and, Do and you know, Nick Spencer's run where he's like Doc Ock again, but he's also just like Doc Ock again in like Deadpool. So I don't know. So but Deadpool, there you go. And these two specials actually really did ring out the totemic symbology of our show. And I thought that was really cool for episodes 32 and 33, just several weeks ago and probably just, you know, a handful of clicks ago. 32 and 33 were the Punisher holiday specials and the XI4P holiday special with Amazing Spider-Man 420. Cool. And Chinese Food for Christmas. These two are two of my favorite episodes all 
together, but for two very different reasons. Tell me. Um, I think that 33, the 420 and Chinese Food for Christmas represent hallmarks of our thoughtfulness. And in the curation of what we've been trying to create, we've talked so much about Tom DeFalco and your namesake is X-Man and this whole thing is about does Spider-Man work? And we've been talking about creations of the 90s and alternate universes. How could we not talk about X-Man? And it was just like beautiful symmetry that we would talk about it there. And it was a holiday issue at the holidays at a point where we'd already kind of just truly clearly lost our way. We had talked about a number of issues from around that time, thanks to discussing other Tom DeFalco projects, like discussing his final issue, discussing things for Black Tarantula. And so this was a really beautiful moment of synergy. And frankly, the fact that I was able to spout off 50 Christmas issues and did not know there were less than 20 Hanukkah stories. Again, Christmas issues, Hanukkah stories, only to further understand that my understanding of a Hanukkah story is actually misbegotten of the Jewish people and is not correct. And to see a story that in, you know, my Jewish co-host's eyes is appropriate of the tradition, culture, and people made me very proud as a, a podcaster, as an editor, and as as your partner, right? And I love that episode 32 gave us an opportunity to discuss the totemic symbology of a character and really have no shits and just tear it to pieces. Uh, I, I I thank you for phrasing all of that the way you did and for giving such an eloquent, clear explanation of what is great about these two episodes. And, you know, I share a lot of your enthusiasm for them. For me, it really was like a personal high. And, you know, it was it was my holiday gift, my Hanukkah gift to get to talk about Nate Gray and the detail that I did in that episode uh, because I resonate with the character so much in ways that I think are both silly and that I'm kind of joking about, but also in ways that I, you know, I, I am rather serious about the camp of these issues and the, you know, probably unintentional, but very not subtle sexual attraction between Peter Parker and Nate Gray is just absolutely the gift that keeps on giving. And yeah, given that there are so few Hanukkah stories that we really got to discuss one in depth and to treat Jewish participation in the holiday as something relevant because of the season itself, not because you know Han Hanukkah is as important as Christmas. It is not, but uh, Jews in America who have assimilated are present for this period, and I think we all feel a little like we're not sure what to do with our hands. You know, it, it doesn't really mean that much to us, but also like there's a lot going on, and we don't just kind of want to stand there we're not trying to be downers but we also just it's not always our tradition so it was just getting to participate in holiday discussion in an authentic way while reading stories that are more reflective of my experience and yeah with with a partner with somebody i love very much and trust very much and with whom you know discussing this background and these stories is a bit of an intimate thing in the first place like there's kind of a lot that goes into it really just a phenomenal opportunity and i do feel you know i'm gonna tag i'm gonna sound like i'm tagging this on but i do feel that in a lot of ways it speaks to the core things that we started talking about post mc2 the totemic symbology the function of alternate universe version of characters all of that stuff it it's there because 
Christmas stories are kind of their own alternate universe story. And then the Punisher stuff, like, yeah, sometimes it really is just fun to rag on something that is so no consequence because I'm sorry, but if I'm hurting your feelings ragging on Punisher before Jason Aaron's, we've got other things to discuss. And on top of that, that it is Christmas where, you know, so many companies and industries are trying to churn out Christmas content to be able to be a part of the season, regardless of taste, regardless of uh, how nonsensical it might be. It, it was a blast to, to just kind of go off on these a little bit. And, you know, I, I not to pat us on the back or anything, but I do feel that sometimes we are really able to dig into what doesn't work and do a proper examination of why something is not the best in a way that's not just us going, oh, I hated it. Haha. Ha, like, doesn't this suck? But really digging into why something is not effective and what the broader implications of that are just as a as a fan and as a creative. Those are things I like to discuss because sometimes you learn from your mistakes. Sometimes you learn from the mistakes of others. Sometimes you learn what to do from seeing what not to do. And that doesn't have to be a negative experience insofar as it means that you are putting somebody down or, you know, uh, questioning somebody's talent. It means that this story didn't work and it's important to acknowledge that and see why and then we move on. And it's certainly not to say that there can't be any sort of, I don't want to say violent, hyper-masculine engagement with Christmas because I am not some sort of like keep the Christ in anything at all. If you ask me, Jesus was a Slytherin. So like, I don't think that's going to work. But like Klaus by Grant Morrison and Dan Mora is like one of the greatest comics I've ever fucking read. And in the course of working on these episodes of the holiday HTML stuff, there was an opportunity to back them on Kickstarter in a hardcover special edition. And so I, of course, did that because I do love the idea of like a gritty, edgy, somewhat confrontational and aggressive Christmas story. But this wasn't it. Yeah, I mean, and you say this wasn't it, but there were seven. Yeah, and that doesn't even count any of the because I I did do more research. There's like five or six more between like Marvel holiday specials and like Marvel Comics presents stories and stuff. It's wild. And you know some of them like that absolutely just insane one with the girl on the leash really speaks to you know sometimes it's important for us to reflect on what we permitted in you know the 90s especially just enjoying that time of extreme and excess in comics and being at a time where the internet wasn't allowing us to connect with each other and confirm that things were in really poor taste and organize around making sure that didn't happen. It's really important to mark those moments and like point out like, yeah, somebody let this go to print. Let us make sure that never happens again. And it's really great that you said like, let's make sure that never happens again, because I don't know that comics are all better for women where we stand now, certainly. But we then read a number of books that celebrated diverse voices in comics and, you know, the voices of women and you know spider-man india hey buddy pivotor you're beautiful we love you come through the studio anytime you want i understand you can travel the multiverse so that shouldn't be too hard for you uh you were amazing so it's not like we only love spider women here we are a big fan of the great multitudinal number of spider peeps and in episodes 34 through 36 we spent time with quite a number of spider rings and we saw the spider verse infinity comic over 
over on Marvel Unlimited issues 1 through 25. I'm going to cut it there for a moment. We also took a look at Spider-Gwen Gwenverse 1 through 5 because I guess she's done with that ghost spider shit. We Or is it ghost spider Gwenverse and I just don't know? I don't know. Uh-oh. Edge of Spider-Verse 1 through 5, which there is just so much of it. It's split across two episodes. But ultimately, episode 35 did bring us home to the one and only Mayday Parker, her first story since the you know reset on her universe. That's like a Mayday story set in her own timeline, although at what point in her timeline is questionable. Of course, it was written by a woman and makes it the first solo Mayday story to be written by a woman. And it featured a shit ton of Benji wearing a J2 shirt. So it really checked a lot of our boxes. It really, really did. Yet somehow it was not the moment we had been waiting for. And that is truly a disappointment for me as a fan. But I do not believe that reflects for one moment on the creative team. I don't know that it reflects on the marketing team. I don't put this blame squarely with editorial either. Sometimes a lot of money will be spent on something, right? Like I forget, I think it might be the title track of SM was going to be like the big single that they were going to push super hard for Rihanna that album and then they determined that it sounded too much like another song so they switched the orders of the singles having already filmed the video and already put all this money behind it because they just decided that even though it was going to be a perfectly good situation they just wanted to change the order of things. Mariah Carey's Glitter is horrible for a lot of reasons but none of them are the original version of Loverboy which featured the same sample as what got used in the I'm Real remix. So at the last second, she pulled it and had to use a different remix. I think she used Cameo. I don't remember. Um, But like, because I only listened to the, you know, the proper version. Um, But, you know, what I'm trying to say is there's a million reasons a totally good product can't come out in the form it's meant to. And then there's also sometimes a totally good product just doesn't catch on no matter how great it is. And, you know, I'm looking at you, most Aaron Sorkin programming. So that Spider-Verse Unlimited Infinity Comic 26 through 30 didn't change my life. Not the fault of anybody involved, I don't think. No, and of course, like, they weren't necessarily setting out to do that. And and by that, I mean, you know, what we were saying is, are we looking at the first signpost in the, you know, announcement by Marvel that May is as important to them as we believe she ought to be and that we really might be seeing her more regularly? No, that was not what it was. And for me, that's kind of what I felt I wanted and really needed to see to just kind of bring me that joy. And I think this felt a little more like everybody acknowledging like May is a secondarily important part of the Spider-Verse. And like, wouldn't it be nice to pay tribute to her in this Infinity comic and tell a really fun Mayday story? And that is a perfect motivation. And it speaks true to everything. She is not a primary Spider-Verse character. She does have a background and comes from a universe where you can kind of insert stories you know you can you can add stuff from her background and it's not going to shake anything up too much all really great ideas so well done for that it's just the thing that i was really hoping for and i think just like for me it would have been like (laughs) it's funny that you mentioned sorkin it's that stupid thing that he does where it's will calling for the rain and then it actually does rain because that's what they need for the votes for us to have been wrapping this up and saying now all we need is for Marvel to announce that they are reinvesting in Mayday, for that to have been the first 
first Spider-Verse story, like I would have death dropped through my iPad screen, but it's okay that that didn't happen. That is not d- diminishes nothing that anybody did. And it doesn't mean it's not going to happen in the future. And I just want to stress again, we had just said in the previous recording, like legitimately the night before, like I seriously, we were finished recording Saturday at like 4.30 PM, yeah. 4.30 at 6 PM. 4.30. <laughs> By Saturday at 6 p.m., Teak is like, hey, look what I just found. Spider-Girl's coming back. So then we were like, all right, I guess we're adding a bunch of stuff. (laughs) And we're going to do all the Infinity stuff to get up to it. And, you know, I didn't think that was going to be our last episode. But it was hard to find anything to really do after that. And, you know, there had been this Ultimate Spider-Man Web Warrior Spider-Verse story that I'd remembered looking at a couple of months earlier just because Spider-Girl is clearly on the cover. It turns out it's not Spider-Girl. It's Petra Parker, a female Spider-Man. And, you know, that was last episode. So I don't need to get into the nitty gritty of what episode 36 detailed when this is episode 37. But it's just insane, like how far this project went and how far it's come back around. I'm, you know, sort of thunderfucked that this is two hours in. It's ridiculous that this is two hours in to recording because this was meant to be a wrap up and I was convinced we'd hit 40 minutes and we'd be done. I, at this point, I truly cannot imagine how you don't just expect it from us at this point because there's been times we've sat down and i'm like this is gonna be a three hour episode and we're done after 18 minutes and we have to like do what's the next thing on the docket really quickly and then we like vamp an intro get to a new point and then come up with a whole new area of investigation i'm used to us doing that as well that has happened a few times far more common that we talk and we schedule out two hours to cover six issues and four hours later we're on the third I do not disagree with that. But yeah, I mean, you know, I I went into this with the expectation that if we hit the multi-hour mark, I would not have been surprised. Um, This is one of those things where I I think we really could keep talking at the same time. You know, it's it's why we're going to have to wrap this up in the same way that we have to wrap up this series as a weekly thing that we do. We could keep talking forever. I think we would find really interesting stuff to say. One thing I think that we are both learning is how how to find that really good I don't even want to call it an exit point but just the way stop where we say all right we're gonna bookmark it here and return to this when there's more for us to discuss in the robust way that we're used to discussing it and in the meantime we're gonna do some really incredible new projects that will inform how we think about all this stuff when we return to it when it's time and that's been I think the big lesson and it was what I said I learned at episode 25 and here we are at 36 because the thing that I didn't say at that point in my narrative telling of the process of creating this like you know really fun thank you IDW for sponsoring this artist edition I realized that you do need to get to a likely ending and it's okay to have some episodes that don't fucking matter like it's beautiful when the magic is there when every word counts and that magic is just right and like there's art that reaches it for me and there's art that comes really close and like even if it's an album where sometimes I'll skip tracks you know I, I say all the time that like my favorite records of all time tend to belong to like my my trinity of hero women and like you know i could put on 
Butterfly or Emancipation of Mimi. I might skip a track here or there that day, but I think they're generally pretty perfect with Janet. I tend to think that like Rhythm Nation and Velvet Rope are pretty perfect for Tori Amos. It's probably Boys for Pele and Scarlet's Walk. And you know what? I'm going to cross a boundary that nobody wants to hear and I'm going to say Night of Hunters is pretty flawless, but I'm willing to hear the dissent and you know, I think about how those works are are pretty perfect for me. And like, there might be songs I skip, but like, you know, when I think about Scarlet's Walk, I think about the B-sides too. And how if you don't include Mountain and Operation Peter Pan and Ruby Through the Looking Glass, I just think you're missing some of it. And like Seaside, you know, that's literally about a place that's like actually 10 minutes from my house right now. And I think about how like, I don't like the radio edits of anything on Rhythm Nation. And so like when I'm at the gym and I have to remember to skip a chorus of miss you much well you can fuck yourself and you know I'm, I'm making this weird analogy but like I do ultimately see this project this unraveling the totemic symbology of spider girl into what became a much more complex thing as its own run it is its own run and we needed to say goodbye to it in the right way and like I said we could have said there were 38 episodes because we could add that Conan episode and we could have said there were 39 episodes because we could add that Electra thing as kind of a prequel and it fits that you did a Christmas episode this year in this project because your first thing was Christmas and it fits that you did two Christmas episodes this year because last year you did two Christmas episodes and I could go on and on right um, but I think the magnitude of the impact this program has had on me and on the, the future of my creativity and this network and how we are trying to create comic podcasts it's been really interesting because by giving in to something I thought no one would fucking care about in the least. And, you know, there were episodes that none of you fucking cared about. <laughs> I've seen the numbers, guys. There were episodes that none of you fucking cared about. And there were episodes that broke records for us as a network, right? So, um, you know, uh, you know the, the 10-year-old boy that, like, was obsessed with this is, like, so grateful. And the 36-year-old man that produced this is also so grateful. Right. Because I talk a lot about the 10 year old boy that grew up on these comics, but I don't talk enough about the 36 year old man who is so grateful for all of his listeners. Right. And for his partner who came along on this and for his amazing husband, who is the producer on the video version of this. And trying to wrap this up was like trying to say this is the end of the multiverse, which is why it's not really wrapped up. You know, this isn't the first what we did and what's next we've done. And it's certainly not going to be the last. I have sales data this episode. And the next time we do this, we're going to say where we were so we can pick things up. And when we leave things off, we're going to say where we're going next. And next time we're going to have sales data and we're going to talk all about Spider-Girl and what it means to have great power and great responsibility. And so, yeah, that's why it doesn't bother me that this is number 37. If you know me, you know that I'm like really fucking weird about numbers. I think numbers are like the most magical thing in the world. And it's why I think music is magic. And it's why there's magic everywhere. And like, I really love geometry and shape. And like, I really care about numbers. I probably care more about numbers than most forms of communication, right? I think you can tell a lot in numbers, right? And this being number 37, and that I'm willing to think there could be a 38 and a 39 should really bother because I can't put that in a spreadsheet and quantify it. But it really speaks to the open-ended nature of Spider-Girl herself and the ability to swing to the next thing. And I, I love that we're so far from done. And I love that, you know, I purposely 
purposely saved the stats for the end because I didn't want to end on the emotional thing. I wanted to end on on the light thing, the easy thing, because it's just not over. Yeah, there will be another episode. I'd like to think maybe if we do another one, we're going to do kind of legacy numbering or we'll do return to Spider-Girl, return to MC2 or something like that. But- oh, I love that. Uh, you know, I love me a good 1350. Exactly. Ultimately, this is, you know, our whole line is expanding. Our coverage is expanding. Uh, we are a multiversal, multi-topic show that is really just digging into the fertile soil and finding all these new things. And yeah, this one, we found a really good place to be like, hey, we're going to we're going to come back to this. But it should surprise nobody when sometime in the next year we've got more to say on Spider-Girl, on MC2, on any of these things. And it should surprise no one to hear references to it in other projects we have coming up because, you know, I mean, like, uh, it'll be uh, next month when we start doing our second round of dark web coverage and we talk about Elizabeth Tyne. This is is really kind of now built into the DNA as of the X's four universe. And, uh, that, that helps me to feel like, oh yeah, we're just kind of, we're not stopping. We're expanding. And to take a look at what we've done with that expansion in mind, cause yeah, you're right. It's going to be in like every episode of this show in one way or another. And we're going to keep bringing it up and everyone's going to keep going. You talked about how much, how did that person also come up? That's my favorite mm-hmm. that everybody keeps being like, how did that person also fucking come up in MC two? Mm-hmm. And I have to be like, you don't understand. It wasn't MC two. It was the totemic symbology of multi universal existence across legacy heroes but i understand your limited perspective um that conversation has never happened but i'm ready you know the first part has definitely happened but it's been during a live show and we knew that we couldn't stop to keep talking about it the way that we stopped for 15 minutes last episode to talk about a vampire show on the usa network for 15 minutes but you're really holding on to this one aren't you But you can tell everybody looks at us half the time like we're fucking insane. Oh, yeah. And that insanity ran across, as we said, 456 issues, which we ran across 37 episodes from May 6th, 2022 to January 27th, 2023. In that time, we spoke on 109 segments, this particular episode marking segment 110. And I can't add in the audio for this episode, but I can assure you it'll be close to two hours. And we recorded 65 hours, 57 minutes, and 46 seconds of final product. Every episode, no matter how tight they are, has at least 20 minutes of cut content. Very rarely more than 20. I tend to keep most of this show intact because of the nature of the discussion being so important to understanding the thematic elements through the research. But yeah, holy shit. (laughs) God damn. Spider-Girl The End, the point at which the show took on its final form, more or less, was issue 221 of 456. So really, as just about as close to halfway as you could possibly be. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I think first we we saw that it was MC2 was going to go, then we saw that we were going to expand off Spider-Girl. So yeah, that feels about right to me. Spider-Girl herself is the titular character of 187 issues that we looked at. Damn. Hey, girl. Now, she's also the star of another, I think it was 58 in my notes, but, you know, with her name, yeah. From here, though, <laughs> 
Tom DeFalco was the creator we looked at the most with 233 entries. Thanks, Tom. You uh, literally were our bread and butter on this. Truly, literally couldn't have done it without you. Genuinely. And, you know, occasionally I think maybe it sounded like we were not fans because we didn't love every piece of work. But we were fans, man. Fans. Really big fans. Oh, and uh, enormous fans. If I could dream to create a tenth of the work at a fraction of the quality, I would have lived a happy life. For the the tenth of the credit he gets. Precisely. You know? From there, you know, my original notes when I was going over, you know, who created this universe? My notes had it listed that it was Tom DeFalco with Pat Oleaf, Ron Friends, and Ron Lim. And while Ron Friends would go on to be on 186 fucking issues, that's nuts. Uh, Pat Oleaf would only do 77, and Ron Lim was only on 32. It's funny, Pat Oleaf seems like, I mean, because he's doing so much at the start, but when you really think about like how much more happens after, yeah, I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense to me. Letterer Dave Sharp actually pulled in 121 issues and legendary inker and sometimes pencil assist, but also finisher, breakdowns, whatever he needed to be to get his buddy Tom DeFalco's book done. Sal Buscema did 109 issues. What a king. So, okay. Uh Some crazy numbers. The worst sales we saw, 7,287 copies belonging to Spider-Man Family Number 4. That's the fourth part of Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man. Yeah, I I have no problem with that. I'm glad it wasn't a Mayday book. That's all I'm saying. Well, the best-selling was not a Mayday book either. (laughs) It was Secret Wars Number 1 at half a million copies. Of course. Wouldn't have it any other way. 527,678 and then another like 300,000 in reprints. Insane. The total sales for our little show are going to be 14,096,061. Now this has some liberties taken where I couldn't get exact numbers. So if it was like issue three, I took an average of two and four. If it was the final issue and I could get any number of issues before that, I figured out the percent change and projected the number. So this is not a true 14 million. It could be a little bit it could be as low as like 13.9 or as high as 15 but yeah because i'm not counting in like reprints and stuff right of course yeah (sighs) and that does make the average sales per issue 33,955 which frankly uh a little high but could be spider girl's average sales yeah yeah i love that i love that number because that to me again that's that core audience that i think about i look at that number and i see you know of course this is mixed through so many issues some of which have nothing to do with spider girl but that's like a solid group of people that I want to talk to about totemic symbology in comics and the history of the little alternate universe that could. Well, I can't wait to, like, I'm trying to figure out how to be like, TK, can we wrap this up so we can go schedule when we're going to play <laughs> that first card game on YouTube? Let's get Because to I'm it. already, yeah, I'm ready to do the next segment. Okay. I, I don't want to say goodbye to this world. It's so fun. It's so silly. Um, You know, Spider-Verse is where you can have a, a car be Spider-Man, uh, T-Rex be Spider-Man, a jaunty little spider with a weird vaudeville sensibility leap off of a sketchy page and enter a multiverse where he is surrounded by superheroes who take him seriously that is my spider also i marvel i know you've never started an only fans for two fictional characters before but if we could get a black tarantula and a pete spider-man only fans i think i think we'd be onto something <laughs> 
listen, it's where marketing synergy has to go next. Right. Well, until I make mine, Pete Spiderman's Thwip. TK, where can everybody find you on the interwebs? You know where to find me. After my namesake, it's xnatexgrayx. Twitter, Instagram, Hive, Tumblr, all over the place. And expanding as we figure out this new world of social media, you find me all over this show, our associated shows. Basically, if it's got X is four in the title, I will be around at some point. You can find me all those same amazing places, plus Nico Action on all your socials. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. You can check out my Glad-nominated fucking story in this book. What the fuck? Uh, Young Men in Love, really excited to promote that fucker. And you can check out my original comics work at KidRiotComics.com, as well as everything you need to know about this show at XisForPodcast.com. And until we come back to see where the Spider-Verse takes us down the line... Man, I I sure hope it stays a Spider-Girl world. I sure hope we continue to stay loose and slam heat and get her some new catchphrases. Listen, as far as you and I are concerned, it will always be a Spider-Girl world, no matter how many issues of X-Men we're covering. This is true, especially because Mr. Sinister is in all of them. There you go. All right. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, with great power does, in fact, also come great basketball skills. And we'll see you. Bye. I just want to keep talking. I don't want to say goodbye. It can't be over. Yeah. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs>